Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. It's The Wonky Show. We're talking about the government's long-awaited response to the org review and its big package of HE reforms. It's all coming up. I think, I think the government's trying to sort of chart, chart a pathway here between saying we want to kind of cool the market, we want to open up different opportunities and, 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 and make sure that people are choosing courses that are likely to lead to good outcomes. Um, but we, we don't really know how to do that without upsetting people. Welcome to The Wonky Show, your weekly way into this week's higher education, news, policy and analysis. I'm Wonky's Editor-in-Chief, Mark Leach, and it's a special edition this week. 1,001 days since Philip Orga published his report into post-18 education and funding, the government in Westminster has finally responded and set its direction for higher education policy for the next few years. So, I'm joined by a team of wonks to help unpack it all. In Watford, in his attic, it's Jim Dickinson, Wonky's Associate Editor. Jim, you're hired for the week, please. Uh, hi, morning, uh, afternoon, whatever time it is. Uh, yesterday, last night in Parliament, was a little do for NUS's 100th. So lots of wine was drunk and lots of memories shared. And Larissa Kennedy gave a really good, kind of inspiring speech. And I can report that NUS is in rude health for its next 100 years. And in North London, it's Wonky's editor, Debbie Missy. Debbie, you're hired for the week. Well, obviously, it's receiving all the ogre, ogre stuff. I mean, what, what more could any wonk want on a Thursday morning? It's cheating. Uh, and. <laughs> And somewhere in the southwest of England, no one is quite sure where. It's DK, Wonky's associate editor. DK, your hire to the week, please. Uh, not so much a highlight, but I was interesting. Not so much a highlight, but I was interested to note that the long-standing commitment on Sharia-compliant loans um, has once again been uh, kicked even further back, and there are hoping that uh, possibly it um, might be somehow included in the LLE. Now, there's an awful lot of things that have been announced this week. Uh, We're going to go through them one by one. Uh, Let's start with the finances and fees, uh, which is garnering a lot of uh, headlines this end of the week. Jim, talk us through exactly what's been announced. Well, um, that's a good question. So what has been announced? Um, I mean, actually... You know, the, the headlines the government wanted to announce were sort of announced earlier in the week. So, for example, the maximum undergraduate tuition fee will continue to be frozen for a few years at 9250 The government says, well, that's great. That will save students money. It means students will get into less debt. Of course, for the majority of students, if everything else remained unchanged, that wouldn't affect how much they pay over their lifetime. But it will mean they have less money spent on their education. So... Um, you know, we saw various bits of this earlier uh, in the week on uh, fees. Uh, pr- the, 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 the stuff that has come out today that is more interesting is stuff on repayment. So, uh, for example, uh, the big announcement uh, for new borrowers is that they will have to be paying back for 40 years, not 30 years. The kind of result of that is that significantly more of them um, will actually pay their loan off in full. 
Um, and also to deal with the manifesto commitment around um, uh, interest, because the interest rates were in the manifesto, politically a kind of interesting issue. Uh, what they've done is they've announced that they're going to scrap real rates of interest. So in other words, the interest rate on student loans will be pegged to uh, inflation, which is really, really interesting because Orga actually didn't recommend that on the basis that it would be a bit of a waste of money. No one was really calling for it and it would only really benefit <laughs> uh, rich graduates. So, uh, and actually Orga was particularly concerned that if you did that, loads more people would take out a loan, which would cost the treasury money. But um, that's what they've gone for. Um, and, you know, I mean, you know, you, you, if, if you wrap all of that up, what you've got here is, um, significantly less being paid by the richest graduates, the people who do best out of the system in terms of their salary. And to some considerable extent, that's paid for by younger graduates, women, uh, and so on. So, so the actual distributional kind of impacts of what they've announced to, to make the system more sustainable and fairer. Uh, actually are significantly less progressive. And to, and to some extent, it was always going to be the case that they had a couple of choices here to make the system more sustainable. They either push it towards the features of a uh, tax, to, and then you can uh, address the issue of the amount that the kind of richest pay, or you push the features more towards a loan, and then what you do is you call for more people to pay more back, and that, in the end, is less progressive. And it's the latter that they've done, and doubtless that will be the source of controversy in the coming days. Debbie, uh, give us your best estimate of, of why they're making the changes to, um, to, to graduate repayment. I'll, let's co- I'll come back to fees in a minute. The headline from government, from DfE, has been, you know, put the system in a more sustainable footing. So the overall cost to Treasury of loans that will never be repaid is perceived as too great. And, and so, there, you know, there, there, there was going to be movement somewhere. Um, I think this question about the interest rate is a really interesting one. It is completely right, as Jim said, that it is progressive to add interest rate above inflation to student loans in order that those who earn the most pay slightly proportionally more um, and so on. And that, and, and, and that, and that, and that, that creates a sort, of, a sort of nice, a nice taper in, in the graph in, in repayment over 30 years. The thing is, is that it was so deeply unpopular and nobody understood it. That actually the government's got got a win by by essentially by essentially kind of shifting shifting the burden onto on, onto onto lower earners, um, and 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 you know and and that's politics and you know uh, this this thing has been attempted to has been explained so many times and and, and talked so many times, but the kind of the politics of it I think are just um, un, undeniable. So so it is it is it is weird that you know that this is it, it's come it's come out this way and it's not fair um, and there's there's absolutely no question of that. I think it's also this extension of to the forty year uh, forty year repayment. I mean it's it, I mean essentially essentially what it is is that you know new graduates coming into the system will be paying off their student loan. Um, you know, assuming that they're kind of in that kind of middle, you know, you know, low to middle income bracket, which will be the majority of graduates for, for their entire working lives. And, you know, it's, it's as close to a tax as you, as you could, <laughs> as, as you could really make it at a, you know, tax on income over £25,000. Um, and, and, and I guess for some people that might in itself be seen, be seen as a benefit. I mean, I think obviously it, 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 it the, the overall outcome will be that the, the, the cost of treasury will be reduced. The, 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 the RAB charge, the, the proportion of, of student loans that, that, re, that remain. Um, you know, 
publicly subsidised, you know, remain un- unrepaid, uh, will be reduced to I think forty four percent was the quoted number in the documentation, which which is is a much more manageable kind of contribution in terms in terms of treasury, and and that's kind of where the government's decided to uh, to draw the lines, and there was going to be no good, there was going to be no good option here, but that that's where they've put it. Mm. But I mean, guys, this is this isn't going to be the last word in this for for the next forty years, is it? Because something's going to have to give with funding for for, for universities. So I mean, maybe we we've kind of we've been kind of given a, a graduate tax through the through the back door. But I mean, Mark Corver came to uh, our event a couple of weeks ago. Uh, this is Mark Corver from Data HE. His analysis of of nominal real interest rates uh, and what that does to tuition fees means by twenty thirty that nine two fifty will be worth about two thousand pounds per student. And that's not sustainable. So something is going to have to give if we're going to keep universities not just financially healthy, but just able to provide any kind of semblance of a of a great student experience, right? So there is a chunk in here where uh, the consultation and the policy statement is a it's a two in one. Um, it does go over the arguments Olga was raising about the possibilities of efficiency savings uh, and noting what it calls unexplained differences in the cost of providing education at the same level and at the same subject area by provider. Now, uh, there are all kinds of ways in which this difference might be explained. I mean, if you're in London, you might have to pay your staff more or uh, pay more for estates, and that might drive the cost up. Uh, There might be a particular technical slight to a particular course that um, makes it not comparable with other courses of nominally uh, the same uh, coverage. But there, there is an aspiration that we look at uh, best practice on uh, the delivery of courses across the sector and that um, institutions will uh, cut their cloth accordingly, which to me seems slightly optimistic to say the least. I, I mean, and also, is that the risk, Jim, that this is going to create all kinds of strange applicant behaviour for, for the next couple of years, isn't it? Because if they, if, if, if this is rolled out for September 2023, if you want to do a arts course, say, um, and you're not expecting to earn a lot back, uh, through, through your, uh, through the rest of your career, you are massively incentivized to jump on a, any course you can get this year under the current system, because this is only going to apply next year, right? Well, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I mean, Martin Lewis has already pointed out something. I mean, you're right, but I mean, has also has already pointed out something kind of a bit more base, really, which is if you're if if this September the loan term is thirty years and next September it's forty years, you're going to jump on now, aren't you? So, you know, if nothing else, we ought to see this huge surge in demand in terms of you know people abandoning the idea of going on on, on a gap year. Yeah, I mean, we saw we saw that we saw that in 2011, didn't we? Right before the fees went up and and um. I suspect I suspect we might not see it at the same scale this year simply because uh, the, the headline fee level is something everyone can you know tripling of fees is something that everyone can really you know is really going to get driven home whereas extension of repayment probably feels a little bit less yeah but, but pressing. I, you, you're you're not wrong about that but Martin, you know when Martin Lewis adding his voice to this and and others yeah I, I think I think I think those things do cut through I mean just on your point about on, on the gap year so Jim isn't isn't the reverse possibly true and maybe this is reading one kind of behavioural leap too far but if you expected to earn a lot back over your over your course of your career if you were expecting to go into the city or finance or something like that actually wouldn't you be more incentivized to start this year rather than next year because yeah, I, the regressive I mean, nature well, of the changes 
it's fascinating you say that, Mark, because a bit like you know, as Debbie says, t- technically that is true, but I don't, but I don't think that will cut through. So if you look at the kind of graphs of the sort that. Um, London economics have produced today. One of the things that is true about the tweaks to the system is actually for the richest male graduates, the changes to this that that have been introduced today make the system much, much cheaper. So if you're a male and you're expecting to earn a huge amount of money, yes, you would do that. But that's real technical stuff that I think is, you know, as I say, really difficult to get to a point where it cuts through. But it should probably be in the interviews for those sorts of jobs, shouldn't it? If they they figured it out, they they probably deserve to earn good good money Mm, working in finance. they would uh, be paying much more tax as well, of course, so it's not um, a simple win. But, but, I mean, the other thing about this for me is, I mean, all of this is true in terms of the terms, but once you're looking at 40 years, and once you have a few years of the government tinkering with the terms for existing loan holders, I mean, on one level or another, despite what Martin Lewis would do in terms of information, don't you just sort of give up being able to calculate this over a lifetime? Because you just have to assume that they're going to fiddle with terms in three years and five years and 10 years and 20 years and so on, surely. Exactly, exactly. Something is going to change again and and probably not that far away. It'll be another once in a generation reform, Mark. (laughs) But I think, I mean, Mark, I think your point about, or well, I suppose um, Mark Corver's point about the actual cost of delivery, I mean, it's, you know, I think, you know, the sector can breathe a sigh of relief in terms of of the fee freeze, um, because the worry, of course, was, you know, that the yoga recommendation of of a cut to seven and a half K would be implemented. You know, that you know, that that's that's essentially a good outcome, certainly in this in this parliamentary term for universities. But you know, the overall fee level has eroded over time, it will continue to erode. Um and and in the meantime, Universities have an enormous kind of costs to bear. Um, you know, they're trying to do interesting things to the learning environment. They they have you know enormous expectations about supporting uh, you know the diversity of students that they're bringing in and and supporting supporting them on kind of their well being and mental health. And it is it is very hard to see how you know this this puts the current system on a sustainable footing for about two years. I don't think I certainly don't think it it delivers that kind of long term settlement. And I, and, I, and I can't imagine that the lifelong loan entitlement arrangements will be able to address that in any kind of meaningful way. Well, we'll come back to a lifelong learning, learning entitlement a bit, bit later. But I mean, yeah, that timing uh, w- would seem to suggest that um, essentially we're, we're pushing the really difficult decisions to after a general election. If we're expecting, um, if, if we think this kind of keeps everything on an even keel for a couple of years, then it's going to be up to the next government, isn't it, to have to pick up the pieces. And as DK says, launch a once in a generation review into higher education funding. At the same time as they're going to be launching the lifelong loan entitlement, I just wanted to flag a particular uh, paragraph from the main consultation that I think is particularly apposite in this. If you think back to all of the column inches in the Telegraph and the Times that Michelle Donnellan has been getting from saying universities absolutely should not be teaching online, they should not be uh, cutting costs and short uh, um, changing students, etc. I'm actually going to read this whole paragraph, actually. Um, In the adversity of the pandemic, providers have found efficiency savings as well as reductions in expenditure and have innovated in delivery. Over the coming years, in the context of our proposed reforms, there will be much further innovation in how providers uh, deliver the flexible posting education offer that the, the nation needs. There is an opportunity to be taken here to build in best practice and efficiency across the sector as new approaches evolve. So um, effectively, there is somebody at DfE that um, reckons that higher education providers have 
saved money uh, during the pandemic by doing things differently, which of course they haven't, and reckons that these savings can be continued and increased by actually doubling down on those same uh, changes. It is once again an instance of one half of the DfE not talking to the other half. You can play a culture war or you can save money. You can't do both. Yes, it's hard to see how you deliver a kind of flex- flexible uh, without you know the sort of the flexible landscape that that, that the lifelong loan entitlement is is is, is trying to get, is, tr- is trying to kind of set up without investing significantly in in very good digital technology and that's and, and that does cost money that's not that's not efficient <laughs> or, or or certainly not certainly not in the initial in the initial stages as we've been discussing one of the really big flanks of the government's proposals this week is fleshing out the lifelong loan entitlement uh, a major new policy agenda. DK, talk us through this. So I think you're right to highlight the scale of this. This is likely, if it comes off, to be the major um, legacy of the uh, Johnson administration, apart from all of the other legacies that are perhaps outside of the scope of this podcast. And what surprised me in the consultation is we are at a very early stage of thinking. If you look back to the introduction of the Skills and Post-16 Education Bill, uh, there was an expectation, all of the detail on this stuff, everything on how the lifelong learning entitlement was meant to work and all of the legislative underpinning that was meant to support it, was going to be added into that bill at some point uh, during its passage in the Lords. Of course, we've now reached the end of the Commons passage and we're in ping pong and there's no chance of anything being added there. So we were told um, after the Lords report stage that there would be some new legislation that would get all of the detail in and onto the statute book um, to make the LLE actually work in the way that it was expected and planned. By the looks of this consultation, we are not going to see that in the next session. There will need to be another technical consultation after this. This is a very broad brush consultation. It's looking at the uh, principles. It's looking at the big policy decisions. On one level, that's a really good thing. It means that a lot more people will be able to make a constructive input into this thinking and hopefully shape the system. But on another level, for those of us who were looking into um, looking forward to getting into student identifiers and all the rest of it, and uh, definitions of what a module is and um, credit frameworks, this might not be the consultation that you are hoping for. So let's quickly come to what we now know: the lifelong um, loan entitlement will replace the existing student finance scheme and the advanced learner loans. It'll be a single product that's covering both use cases. It'll be available for study of any length above 30 credits between level four and level six. So that's anything from like the level of a first year degree or an old HNC up to the le- um, a complete honours uh, degree. The... 30 credit thing is interesting because, I mean, most modules in universities are 15 um, credits. You get eight of them in an academic year. So if you're looking for finance to do a module in inverted commas, that means you're going to be um, need to take a number of modules at a particular uh, provider to make that actually work. The total value of loans available is a 
is equivalent to four years of post-compulsory education uh, because at the moment a lot of different providers offer post-compulsory education at different uh, prices. It's liable there will be some kind of standardization in terms of the cost of a module or the cost of a one-year course or um, whatever. There will still be some price competition though we are talking about the maximum stuff and we were a few of us i think were expecting there would be something on credit frameworks and the idea that although we have the faq it's it's not actually mandated for use right across the larger sector and there was some thinking that the government needs to step in or the regulators need to step in and impose it that now does not look to be the case they're expecting the sector is going to muddle through and given that the sector has failed to muddle through in a to a greater or lesser extent with um the accreditation of uh prior learning and prior experiential learning, um, which is also in the mix, I don't think it's likely that is going to happen now. And uh, this is also the only consultation out today that you will find information on maintenance loans. The idea seems to be that um, maintenance loans will be available pro rata to the amount of study that you're actually doing. Um, it's all up for grabs, but there are questions about if there is a lower level of in intensity beyond which you wouldn't get a loan, or that there would be different loans based on the kind of study you're doing or your personal characteristics. So there's a lot of stuff in here, but it's all at a very early stage. Right, where do we go from here? <laughs> I think that's the main question, yes. Yeah. Um, the, the, it does seem like if it, if it was all to come about and, and obviously to get, to get worked through this, this would represent quite a significant change, wouldn't it? Yeah. And I think, I think one of the things we've seen in the sector responses, um, is, is a sort of, and consistently actually since the lifelong loan entitlement was proposed, you know, way back when, when, you know, Boris Johnson gave, gave a speech, you know, a year and a half ago about it, um, you know, a, a, a sort of, a sort of cautious welcoming, a sense, a sense that it could actually be quite transformative. I mean, it, cause it does, it does several positive things. It aligns further and higher education qualifications potentially in a way that could smooth the pathways between them and give students more kind of choice and, and more opportunities to do things in a different way. It addresses the, the, uh, you know, the real challenge that we have in this country with, with upskilling and reskilling, wherein, you know, pe people are kind of, uh, people's education is kind of front loaded to earlier in their lives. Um, it, 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 it potentially does really interesting things in terms of combining different, different bits of education together to create something, um, really kind of personalized and, and tailored to, to different labor markets and, and, and employment possibilities and kind of personal interests and, uh, and, and all that good stuff. Um, it's so, so, you know, there is a sense, I think, that the sector really kind of sees, sees the value of, of something like this, but the just enormous challenge of making something like that work. And I think the enormous risks involved in, um, you know, in, in, in people sort of setting off on, on pathways that, that may or may not add up to anything in particular, or, in, you know, it, it does require a real sort of shift in focus. Um, and, and, and I think the kind of the, the, the delay and the kind of, I guess, the, the degree of, the degree of, of still kind of early stage thinking that we're seeing at this point really indicates that. And, and I suppose what, what, what it's to be hoped is that the sector, and I think will, the sector really will do this, will be to really focus on thinking about how to make this work in practice, how to pull together in such a way as to enable, uh, 
you know, put, you know, put these frameworks together that 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 in, in, enable the sort of positive outcomes that everyone hopes will be seen, um, and and the, and the level of government uh, continued interest, investment, and commitment to to making this reality, especially given that actually what we're looking at is something to be implemented post the next election. The elections, uh, you raise a good point, Debbie, because of the election. I mean, this is a interesting set of policies, um, and I think there is lots of as you're saying, got a fairly good will in the sector to, to try and try and make this work. Uh, obviously, pending pending a lot of the detail. But I mean, is it kind of politically going to be this this sort of bullet? I mean, DK talked about it like possibly the the legacy, the main policy legacy. And kind of Rachel Wolf said something quite similar on on Wonky this morning, actually, didn't she? She she said that kind of Zahari's skills reforms here is essentially the apart from Michael Gove leveling up department, kind of the major flank of government policy action right now when everyone's either concerned with international affairs or scandals. So, you know, I, I guess my question is, is this kind of the high watermark for policy? And, 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 and kind of flowing from that, it, could it could it actually help the government politically? If there are big question marks over whether or not providers are keen to go down this route, and I think there are, there aren't many theme parks that are keen to start charging individually for rides... And if there are big question marks over whether or not students and or learners really want to go down this route because people want qualifications rather than individual (laughs) kind of modules, then it's really difficult to see how the kind of pre-period where this is being kind of set up, because we're not going to experience it anywhere close to the election, it's really difficult to see how the kind of excitement in the pre-period builds to be electorally advantageous. And actually... Until unless and until it's up and running, it's hard to see how there's any electoral benefit at all. Um, and it's really, really hard to see how people in, um, you know, lots of the communities around the country that felt left behind uh, would look at this and think, oh, yeah, yeah, brilliant. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's really difficult to see how that, uh, how the two things connect. So, look, it might well be in a, over a really long period of time a transformational piece of policy, but the political benefits are a long way off. This is exactly what people say about the levelling up policy, which is is interesting, isn't it? it? It does seem like there are some ministers for once doing things a bit more long term than just the next general election cycle. I mean, but but there is a world in which the. Uh policies are not what actually wins elections anymore that elections are won by uh prime ministers um um saying things that they think um most of their cohort agree with so wafting pints in the air and on that level the uh, the um political uh, um calculus of the policy is not necessarily is this a vote winner it is is it actually going to do us any damage? And if you look at the front page of the Times this morning, you look at the um, headlines, this has not been um, a popular policy overall, a popular pack, um, a popular package overall. And I mean, at the moment, the financial stuff and the changes to the student loans are slightly overshadowing the LLE. But you have to question, is there en- enough in the LLE at the moment, um, at the level of detail that we're uh, currently looking at to push back against? I mean, to give you an example, the, sh- the short section 3.1 on quality assessment and regulation, which floats the idea that everything that is um, funded um 
via the LLE has to be of a decent uh, quality. And at a top um, level, a political level, you think, yeah, fair enough. Um, you want to avoid the mistakes of the individual learner account, all the rest of it. But then it hints at the idea that there could be a, a single scheme of quality assurance for the entire of post-compulsory education. And that is an absolutely massive change. And I would wager would take probably more than a couple of years to actually do and actually make happen. So even if you're thinking of the policy in terms of, okay, this is something we can put in the manifesto that we've done, and it'll probably excite some people if we describe it uh, correctly, that the uh, chances of all of this actually being ready for 2025, as promised, are quite slim. You've got the real danger that you are effectively saying that this is a policy that we started years ago. It's still not ready, but it'll be great when we finish it. It's like a Boris Bridge. And we know from experience that that the black is also not something that will win a vote. <laughs> I think I think we should be because I think it is when a government does something that is unpopular, it can be seen as a it can be seen as a sign of strength or it can be seen as a sign of um, a sort of, of, of sort of failure. Um, and I, I think. I mean, whatever anyone kind of listening might think about the rights and wrongs of how you fund it, fund education, you know, the government kind of very much perceived itself as having a policy problem, and it made and it, and it finally, finally managed to make some unpalatable choices about what to do about that, as well as put, putting putting forward some proposals. I mean, equally unpopular proposals, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, to uh, but but particularly on, on the lifelong learning entitlement, you know, proposal, proposals that are designed to do you know do interesting things for the long term, and I think you have to sort of give credit for that. But 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 then I guess you know the the, the acknowledgement that there is very little, you know, I think there is electoral gain in some of the skill stuff. Certainly, I think there you know there is a sort of sense, particularly um, that 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 re, you know doing some of that rebalancing work towards FE and expanding opportunity in the higher technical space is you know, plays well. Um, among particular demographics um, and conserv- of conservative voters, but that the overall rollout of the LLE is not going to be the thing that, that you know wins the government the next election. And, and the risk, of course, is is that the kind of the impetus wears off it because because it is complicated to implement and also not very electorally, you know, not especially electorally popular. I mean, at, at best, it's probably electorally neutral. Now, our colleague Sunday Blake is here to tell us about the government's announcement on PQA and PQO and where it's taking them or isn't. We've received the news that any likelihood of a post-qualification system of admissions, that is, an application system where students apply and are accepted for university places after they have received their A-level results or equivalent, is well and truly dead in the water. Some parties, such as UCU, are unhappy about this, arguing that this further entrenches social inequalities and prevents social mobility and access to higher education for working class students. This is because underpredicted grades lead to poorly matching students of institutions. However, a lot of people in the sector seem pretty pleased at this news. The arguments here are that it would be a drastic and costly reform to a system which then has a danger of becoming a number or a grades-based system, which removes the context, such as interviews and the such, that could make or break a candidate's offer. Now, perhaps a full move to PQA would have caused disruption, but that doesn't really mean that the current system, which we are staying with for now, does not need major major reform. First of all, if post-qualification admissions are so bad, 
why are we content with 70,000 students going for a free-for-all version of them every year through clearing? Especially when the higher dropout rates for students who've gone through clearing have been used to argue against PQAs. Another argument put forward is that under a PQA system, there would be less time for applicants to consider their options and seek advice. Such a compressed timetable for applications and admissions would mean that students miss out on key information and guidance on HE applications from their school. This would be twofold, given that students would receive their results, which they would need under PQA to apply to universities. It would be outside of term time and therefore the students would be harder to reach and advise. It is argued that this would impact the most disadvantaged students and therefore perpetuate inequality. Actually, limiting time to access information and guidance would probably be a step to equal in the playing field by ensuring that no students have access to information and guidance. Because we are forgetting that for many potential applicants under the current system, the time to sit and consider your options and get professional advice isn't available at all. Now, of course, I don't advocate for this in the slightest. All applicants should have access to quality information and guidance in good time. But it is not enough to rule out PQAs on an information and guidance argument without then looking at how the current system prevents this for many students already through clearing, disadvantage or otherwise. Now, the Department of Education has well and truly shot down PQA as a system. But we do need further work on reform so that no students face the disadvantaged used as a reason to not implement it. Now, the other major flank of the government's announcements this week have been about quality, uh, minimum entry, student number controls. Debbie, talk us through the key proposals. So these are the proposals that have really not met with favour in the sector. And there's been a lot of... um, There's been a lot of pushback at the idea that the government should in any way restrict um, access to or opportunity to uh, take take a higher education qualification, which is entirely understandable. Um, so the the, the thing the, the the proposals that have been and they've been floating around for some time. So we're sort of we're, we're, we're the conversation's been going on for a while. But essentially, the proposals on the table are that some kind of student number control should be introduced that relates to uh, quality. So it's not about the government deciding how many people overall should get to go to higher education, but that there should be some kind of mechanism to restrict access to or indeed encourage encourage greater take up of uh, so restrict access to low quality courses or encourage greater take up uh, of, of higher quality courses and of course quality in this context as we know means um, students achieving outcomes that are generally thought to be desirable um, what's interesting in relation to this is that uh, there's very little discussion about the the office for students consultation on uh, their b3 quality student outcome thresholds um, which would seem to kind of set up a sort of perfect scenario for you know, di- 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 you know, dis- discussing kind of ho- what what the kind of point of intervention might be in terms of student number controls. But actually, DfE is, is consulting on what level student number controls should be implemented at. Should it be about providers? Should it be at the sector level? Should it be at uh, you know course level? Should it be at subject level? Um, they're they're discussing kind of what outcomes should be involved. So, you, so there's the ones that OFS is is already using, but but graduate salary is back in the mix as a potential um, outcome for for from 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 um, moderating student numbers. Um, and also there's, uh, I think, probably uh, deriving from universities UK work on public value um, sort of suggestions that exceptions could be made or, 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 the, or that somehow 
um, strategically important issues could be built into the framework. So one, one of those would be, of course, if, if courses lead to desirable outcomes in terms of public value, like you know people going into ed work in education and work in, work, in, work in healthcare. Another might be if courses are contributing to broader strategic priorities, like achieving net zero, or they're addressing particular skill shortages, or whatever. Um, and that's, I mean, what, what I think is interesting about this is, you know, DfE, as, as with all the proposals around uh, around um, control of access and, and you know who should, who should get to go and what kind of courses, uh, it's DfE has not got a fixed view. It's very much sort of saying, well, we, th we, we want to restrict this. We have a policy problem. We want to put restrictions in place. We want to create these incentives to, you know, in, in ways that, that we think are, are the right ones, but we don't really know how to do it. And we want the view of the sector to help us, uh, help us sort of, sort of solve that policy problem. The other controversial proposal, of course, is, um, minimum eligibility requirements for student finance. And again, there is a, there is a sense that there is a need to put restrictions in place so that people who so that people aren't i guess defaulting straight to full degree study um so it's not that what 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 the government wants to do is i guess sort of sort of calm the 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 the, the kind of rush to to let you know full, full level six degree level qualifications and to nudge people who might not necessarily have all of the academic skills that they acquired to be able to act, to to be successful in those qualifications to maybe look at alternatives such as maybe going in via foundation year or taking a level four qualification of, of, of a different kind or 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 so on and so forth um, and there's two proposals on the table for how that would work one is one is focused on um, achievement and performance at GCSE equivalent and another is focused on achievement and performance at a level um and the of course you know the, the, you know the rank unfairness of 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 putting these proposals forward is that it would disproportionately impact on the less advantaged groups um but you know but but it is also there would also be an awful lot of lots of exceptions so it's suggested that mature students those over 25 would be would be exempt those studying part time um and as i said those those looking to take a, a level 4 qualification which could of course then be a pathway to a full degree so I don't think, I think, I think the government is trying to sort of chart, chart a pathway here between saying we want to kind of cool the market. We want to open up different opportunities and, 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 and make sure that people are choosing courses that are likely to lead to good outcomes. Um, but we, we, we don't really know how to do that without upsetting people. Um, and, and, and coming over as, as the enemy of opportunity. And that is, and that is a sort of hard place, hard place to be in. Um, and this, and this is why, uh, you know, the, sec the sector's help and input is, is sought to kind of try and figure out how to make those, those work. Hmm. I mean, Jim. One of those key bits is that is the is the relationship between the um, what the government would have to do with on on the student number control side of things for to tackle, in its words, um, low low quality courses, um, and the and the RFS's work on on B three, which we've been covering extensively over over the last few weeks. And can, can you imagine how the two initiatives could speak to each other? Well, I mean, it, I mean, quite straightforwardly, really. I mean, you know, the government effectively nudges a suggestion that, for example, one of the things it could do is introduce student number controls where there's a subject area in a university that is below 50% on proceed, on the proceed measure, which, of course, mixes two of the metrics inside B3. So, you know, for me, I think what this is partly about is... They've, they've delivered some changes to the student finance system that it generates some quite rapid savings that, you know, some of the freezes and so on. And then actually what they need to be able to demonstrate to the Treasury is that they can get a grip on the overall cost of the system. And so if you say now, well, we will introduce some student number controls, you're A, letting OFS do the hard work in working out what the real low quality stuff is. <laughs> and then B, you're 
pre-warning people that, you know, for some of that provision where, you know, that is below, you know, that has a flashing red light on the B3 dashboard, you, you might end up with some number controls in that provision. So so it's a bit of pre-warning that also gives some, um, you know, if there's a real, if there's a Treasury official going, what are you going to do to get this system under control? Then at least you've got an answer. I mean, it's not a given that this is going to happen. This is a, this is a set of proposals and there isn't a, there isn't a fixed uh, view about how to implement this, is there? I mean, but the... Um, I mean, DK, the, we also understand why it's quite an emotional topic for a lot of people in higher education. The, the idea that this might lead to, um, capping aspiration essentially. And, and, and particularly where it comes to, um, a kind of inverse effect to, to, to widening participation activity. So it's, um, a complicated one in that they do propose that the minimum entry requirements eligibility requirements, apologies, would uh, not apply to mature students and there would be um, potentially a way around if you didn't do so well at uh, level two, but you did do well at um, level three. So although there's been a a lot of talk about this, I I don't think there's any understanding these are going to be hard bars. There is going to need to be some... uh, contextual mitigations that will mean that people that can benefit from higher education can uh, get to um, higher education. But in terms of the sector response overall, it's been notable the number of senior leaders, academic staff that have said, I didn't do so well at uh, GCSE and A-levels. Under these proposals, I might not have gone to university. And uh, clearly, I've gone to university and done stuff, and therefore, um, university overall is a good thing. It is notable we've not heard from uh, Gavin Williamson on this, of course. I mean, it's entirely possible that he's not yet remembered what he got um, for his A-levels, but, you know, it's in there. Um, in terms of the overall impact on there, the consultation does note that it is something around one to two percent of existing students that would be affected in each of these scenarios. Um, we don't usually get accurate data on, um, level two attainment as we've said in Debbie's piece. Uh, so it's not entirely possible to be confident about those figures, but it, it's not a massive amount of students. But if you look at uh, disadvantaged students, students that have got care experience, have got free school meals experience, etc., um, it is a lot of those students. And that is something that the, the government needs to be really, really careful about. I mean, for me, it sort of comes down to this question about is, you know, can the government mandate whether someone is prepared to undertake a higher education qualification and, you know, and or I guess the other side of that coin is, can universities be trusted to turn down people who who very patently aren't prepared or indeed be trusted to put the right support in place to to help them get through? Uh, and I, I have a feeling that, you know, the sector is very much lining up on the, in the sense of, you know, no, the government doesn't have the right to do that. Yes, yes, higher education providers can, can absolutely be trusted. I mean, I suppose the response to that is, well, really all of them, every single one, all, you know, all the time. Uh, yeah. And, I, you know, it, it is, it is, I think there's, you know, at, at both, at both ends of these polls, there is a sort of hard place to, hard place to sit, isn't it? It's not, it's not straightforward. And, and finally, Jim, just quickly, What's not in the government's response to awkward review? 
There were seven chapters in the Orga Review. One of the chapters was about the maintenance system, making it fairer, thinking about how much uh, your family has to be earning before they reduce the full loan, the amount of the full loan that you would get. And the government has responded by completely ignoring the entire chapter, not even mentioning it. It's like a plot line that has disappeared between seasons. (laughs) Uh, The other thing I think think is interesting that's missing is we know that um, you know, the number of 18-year-olds and, and, and the kind of demand is going to grow over the next decade. And, and, and I know this isn't a government that, that necessarily is obsessed with kind of central planning, but it is kind of astonishing that, that, that nothing in the document talks about even an estimate around demand over the next few years and then attempts to put numbers against it. And that, I think, ought to give us some worry about, you know, the way that the country is being run. So that's about it for this week. Remember to dig a bit deeper into anything we discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on walkie.com and coverage across the site and our daily briefing and on Monday. Uh, you can also come to our event, New Rules, where we're, we're unpacking everything that's announced this week, uh, uh, including an interview with Philip Borger himself. That's uh, Tuesday, the 8th of March. Uh, more details on walkie.com slash events. So thanks very much to Debbie, Jim, DK and everyone else at Team Walkie that helps make the show happen behind the scenes. Until next week, stay walkie. Stay walkie.